Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 10th, 2021. And I'm talking to you, as always, from my home um, in San Francisco, uh, overlooking this wonderful city we're celebrating out in San Francisco. Uh, Time Out, very reputable uh, uh, magazine about urban life, just named San Francisco the world's best city. I'm not quite sure how San Francisco won that award. I, I, I think it could be simultaneously the world's best and worst city. Uh, But we'll come to that perhaps later in the show. This is going to be a show, once again, about cities, urban life in the age of the pandemic. Earlier this week, uh, regular viewers and listeners know, uh, the distinguished um, expert uh, on on city life, uh, on the history of of cities, uh, Edward Glazer, appeared on the show. Uh, Ed is particularly well known for his... New York Times best-selling Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Made Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. It's a very optimistic book about cities. Uh, but when Ed came on the show at the beginning um, of the week, he was less optimistic about cities because he has co-authored a new book about cities in the age of our pandemic, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Ed co-wrote the book with a a Harvard colleague from uh, the economics department, uh, David Cutler, who I'm thrilled is uh, joining us today from um, his office at Harvard University. He's just back in the office. Uh, David, welcome. Uh, When I I concluded with uh, Ed at the beginning of the week, I said, well, we've covered a lot of the book. What shall I ask David? Um, (laughs) And he said, ask him about healthcare. And of course, David, your day job is at Harvard University. You're one of the world's leading economists, but you're also well known as um, uh, President Obama's uh, advisor on healthcare. So you are very well equipped to talk about healthcare. So uh, perhaps to, to kick off, survival of the city has a lot of stuff about pandemic and healthcare and cities surviving in the age of COVID. Perhaps you might begin by talking a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm pleased to be with you. The, um, it, the, it really is, a, a, if you will, a perfect storm because cities, as Ed wrote about in his book, are where we come when we do not want space between us. And the, the joy and the beauty of cities is that they're, they eliminate space. And then what a pandemic does is it creates the need for space and the need for people to be further apart. And so the question that really comes up is, can cities, the absence of space, survive in an era where the absence of space threatens health? And so that's that's really the fundamental paradox here. And uh, one of the themes of the book is that our healthcare system, both as a country, as a set of cities, and as a world, has not kept up with what we need to do in order to prevent pandemics, and those pandemics could be particularly pernicious for urban residents. So, you know, we have a world that we focused as a world extensively, for example, on controlling uh, nuclear threats, you know, threats of nuclear war. 
And we haven't focused anywhere near that extent on controlling biological threats, not just through war, but through uh, uh, just a random mishap and random outbreak from threatening the world as COVID as COVID has done. So, so that's just the, some of the themes is, is how the healthcare system is not able to help us and how that's then gonna hamper cities. COVID is of course, uh, David, still the headlines, unfortunately, the latest map shows an uptick again in the United States. I showed this map of uh, America and COVID to Ed as well. And one of the things that seems to me a uh, listeners of the podcast won't see the map. It's a map of 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 the out of of of, of COVID hotspots um, in the United States, and I and I pointed this out to Ed that most of the hotspots, David, seem to be outside the city. Is there increasingly a divergence between the urban experience of COVID in America and the rural or the suburban experience? There is increasingly a divergence um, between vaccinated and unvaccinated areas. So what you're seeing now is a big, big split between um, areas with very high vaccination rates. Massachusetts has a very high vaccination rate. Um, other New England states do. And areas that are very, very low on vaccination rates, particularly areas like Mississippi, Alabama, and then as as NAP shows through Texas and uh, through Texas and up and through Tennessee and and uh, uh, and north from there, those splits are big, and it will also vary within state. So if you look at the unvaccinated population, there there are really two different types of unvaccinated people. There are the sort of hell knows. So those are the Republicans. The I don't believe that the government should be telling me what to do and I'm going to fight this tooth and nail and I won't do this at all. That's obviously more in rural areas than it is in urban areas. But then you also have the hesitant population. You have, and this is particularly racial and ethnic minorities, people who have traditionally been mistreated by the medical care system, people who are not sure that they trust that the medical care system is really looking out for them as opposed to looking out for white people instead. They're not hell knows, but they're also not, I want to get this, you know, as soon as I can, as quickly as I can. And so those are the two groups. And the, and the, the mix of those two groups in an area is then is going to tell you how big the vaccine problem is. And the bigger the, the unvaccinated population, the more you've got a COVID problem area. Uh, I'm pleased you brought up. The, the the racial, cultural, and economic inequalities when it comes to healthcare and the vaccine. We've done a number of shows on that. One of the people we had uh, last year on the show was Harriet Washington, who, who wrote the classic medical apartheid. Um, I know you talk quite a lot about racial inequality in the city, in survival of the city. Um, how has that been compounded by COVID and what does it tell us about getting cities right. As I said, I, I joked at the beginning about San Francisco being named the world's best city. It is the world's best city for wealthy white people like myself. It's probably the world's worst city for the homeless, for people who can't afford the rents, for people who are experiencing the terrible poverty and downturn of the COVID age. So Every city, every U.S. city, and even most world cities have the feature that health varies enormously across very small distances. 
So if you take not San Francisco for a second, but if you jump to the other coast and you look at New York, within a 20 minute subway ride, you can go from an area where life expectancy is, you know, in the high 80s to where life expectancy is about 20 years lower. So roughly for every minute of a subway ride, you can lose about a year of life expectancy. And that's true in New York. It's true in every city where people have mapped it, whether you go to southern cities, midwestern cities. It's true in New Orleans. It's true in Louisville. It's going to be true in San Francisco. It's going to be true in where I grew up, Los Angeles. So it's uh, all of that is um, it's sort of uh, just a fact of life. And it's um, disheartening that, you know, within areas within a rich country, within super rich cities, you have these areas of poor outcomes. And to, and COVID sort of picks up on exactly that, because if you look at the areas, if you, again, just go back to New York, if you look at the areas of New York where COVID hit the worst, they're the same areas where life expectancy overall is the worst. But ironically, COVID started among world travelers and so on. And some of the first outbreaks were in, you know, Westchester County, which is a rich suburb of north of New York City. But sure enough, uh, COVID hit worst in the Bronx and the poorer parts of Queens and Harlem. And the richer areas of Manhattan were largely spared in terms of COVID death rates. And so COVID just, it's kind of a microcosm of the healthcare system as a whole where those who are better off wind up doing better, those who are worse off, um, just unfortunately, every single time, they wind up do it, doing less well. It's fascinating, David. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had the historian Michael Pye on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, um, but he's just written this wonderful um wonderful history of, of Antwerp in its glory times as the world city. It didn't last very long, about 50 years, but for a time during the 15th century, Antwerp was, was the most vibrant, the richest, perhaps even the most commercially powerful city in the world. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because what you're telling me about the city suggests that it somehow encapsulates um, feudal Europe, of these radical inequalities between the castle and the village, between the lord and the peasant. Is there something ironic about that, given that cities were supposed to be vessels, vehicles of modernity? Mm. Well, you, you're, you're correct about that. And, you know, the, um, uh, you, you started off by noting that my colleague Ed Glazer had written uh, what you might think of as a love story to cities, which is absolutely true, the triumph of the city. And for, for such a long time, cities were, you know, they, they were what people have uh, mythologized the West as being. You know, the West was that rugged place where you could start over and make your life and, you know, didn't matter who you were, but, you know, it mattered what you could do and stuff like that. And long after the West was conquered, if you will, that is the West was settled, cities were that place. That's where you went if you wanted to start life and you wanted to make a a, a go of it and so on. And it didn't really matter which city, you know, you could go to, you know, Los Angeles, you could go to Detroit for a while, you could go to Cleveland, wherever it was, you know, that's where you went. And then um, uh, what's happened is that in many ways, the, the halves of cities 
have pulled up the drawbridge and made it be more difficult for the have-nots to come in. And San Francisco is just a classic example of that, where if you don't have a fortune, it is very hard to live because the housing is so constrained and the lack of new building is so constrained that you just can't afford it. So what we're seeing now for, for, for decades and decades, there was a truism, which was people move to cities and amongst cities, they move to the richest cities because that was where you could make the most and you know they, lots of need for people and so on and so forth. It is still the case that people are moving to cities, but they're no longer moving to the rich cities. They're not moving to cities. Right, they're going to Boise. They're going to They're going uh, to Boise, they're going Nashville. They're going to Houston. They're going to Phoenix because those areas have made it possible to just build and build and build. But has and anything substantially changed, David? Uh, Richard Florida, of course, popularized the, the concept of the creative class. Mm -hmm. Is it simply poorer members of the creative class who are going now to Boise or to Bozeman or to Cleveland? Or has something changed in terms of our migration patterns when it comes to cities? It's changed in terms of the migration patterns. So it's really no longer possible to say, you know, I don't even want to be a member of the creative class. I just want to think about, can I open a barber shop in San Francisco and, you know, do okay? And then my kids will get integrated into San Francisco and I will, um, uh, and you know, then we'll that you know that that's going to start our upward American dream, and it, that's virtually impossible because there's almost nowhere you can live in San Francisco, and you're going to be commuting hellish distances and so on, and so as a result, I think that the potential barber is not moving to San Francisco, they're moving to Houston or they're moving to Boise or they're moving somewhere else, and that's a real loss. That that's a huge loss for them because whatever many good things come from being around other people, particularly in a booming economy, it's a loss for them. And I think it's a loss for the vitality of some of these cities, which get very stagnant. You know, so an, another example that we bring up in the book is these sort of battles over gentrification, where example there is Los Angeles, and you have these battles over, you know, the arts district moving into one of the Latino areas of East Los Angeles. And they're sort of at loggerheads with each other and really who they ought to be at loggerheads with are the people in the West side who say, no, 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 you can't build anymore. Because that's then pushing everyone else to be crowded and to crowd upon each other everywhere else. So rather than saying, we're gonna make the city hospitable to people, they say, we're gonna sort of, as the insiders pull up the drawbridge and we're gonna make it be very difficult for everyone else. And then if you wanna go fight it out over there, go fight it out over there. But that's not a very comfortable way to do it or not a very good way to do it. David, in the book, uh, Survival of the City, you make a big deal about education, about re-architecting the city in terms of adding schools and to some extent universities. Um, uh, a, few, uh, a, a, a few months ago, I had the Trinity College uh, academic, very brilliant young man, Devarian Baldwin on the show, who argues that universities, universities like your very own uh, Harvard University in Cambridge, Mass., are plundering our cities. They're the sort of new colonial masters of, of, of urban space. What would you make of, uh, of Baldwin's argument? <laughs> so I'm not gonna defend everything universities do. I'm not gonna defend everything my university does. I'm not gonna defend just in general. Um, I do think that um, universities in general have been enormously beneficial for society. So they have trained uh, people in um, 
all sorts of areas in terms of how to grow and be successful in the modern economy. You know, what we've observed over time is that the gap in earnings between having a bachelor's degree and not having a bachelor's degree has just skyrocketed. That the entry card, if you will, for getting into a good job in a good sector, you know, it used to be a high school degree and then you could go work in a factory and you could do really well and so on. And that's no longer the case. And the entry degree now for getting into the sort of escalator, the up, upward escalator of society is now a BA. And universities are trying very, very hard to expand their ability to teach people um, and, and sort of provide that upward mobility. They're also extremely good places to work. So if you look, benefits are high in universities compared to other jobs and wages are higher in universities compared to other jobs and they, they, they tend to be more stable employers although uh, david to, to be uh rather rude here um david graber called university jobs or, or or the kind of jobs in universities bullshit jobs as an economist put your economist <laughs> hat on are they actually adding to any value we're just creating more and more bureaucrats and charging people more and more to go to these privileged spaces you know, it's funny because they, the, the tuition has gone up um, and it, you ask and then you can ask, why do people pay it? And the answer is because the value of a university degree is going up even more. So so that the, so that um, for 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 all the flaws. And again, I'm not going to defend everything my university or any other university does. But for all the flaws, the value of the worth of a university degree, if you measure how much do you earn, if you have one versus if you don't have one, that keeps going up and up and up. And it's just it, it, and it's a, sort of absolutely, um, you know, it, it, the entry card now into 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 the up escalator involves a B.A. And that David, talk to me a little bit about the collapsing um, space between corporations and cities. Amazon just announced that they're going to pay everyone who works there, uh, going to give them a free education. Now, San Francisco increasingly might be the world's best city. I'm not sure about that. But uh, when you go downtown, it increasingly reminds me that it's, um, uh, it's a software city. It's a tech city. Um, uh, Mark Benny, it's it's Mark Benioff City. It's 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 Salesforce City. Amazon, of course, uh, Seattle has become uh, Amazon City. Are you concerned with the way in which these increasingly powerful tech companies, in particular, the Salesforces, the Amazons um, of the world, are again? I don't want to use this word co colonization because it's overused, but they are controlling cities, managing cities, and sort of making cities mirrors of themselves. One of the things that we talk about in the book, which is absolutely related to this, is that you can imagine a situation where um, firms say, you know, we don't need our particular location as much. And so therefore they say, look, we, we're, we're more footloose. We can think about moving anywhere in the country. And that's going to then put a lot of pressure on cities. So that's going to, you know, that the cities are going to have to worry about what their tax rates are and what their other policies are and so on. Cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Boston, they'll all be fine because people really want to live in those areas. The amenities are great and so on. Other cities, you think of the sort of Nashvilles and the Clevelands and the Phoenixes and the Houstons and so on, that, that where, where the big attraction is sort of cheap land, you, you get a little bit 
more worried because, you know, what if everyone else starts promising cheap land and what if, um, you know, you can go anywhere and get that. So, so the cities, so, so, so the, the, the authority that companies have coming from their ability to move is likely to go up. And the, if you will, the sort of musical chairs, the game of musical chairs, there may not be enough chairs and uh, for everyone. And so um, some cities might just lose out and it could be very, very painful next set of years for those cities that cannot figure out it's always the middle, David, isn't it? It's, it's true. It's, it's, it's a law throughout the economy, whether it's the middle class, whether it's the middle market in bookstores or music stores. There's always a huge low end and high end. It's a winner-take-all economy. And I guess the same is true in cities as anything else. Let, let's go back to healthcare, because as I said at the beginning of this conversation, uh, you were President Obama's um, advisor. I don't know if you were his primary advisor on health care. So in a sense, you're, you're, you're one of the, the key architects of Obama's Affordable Care Act, the, uh, the, the famous or infamous ACA, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it. Wearing your Obamacare hat, how do you think that's changed American cities? What does it tell us? What did you succeed with and what can be improved in, so in terms I, of cities? I, I mean, it's obviously a bigger question. Yeah. So um, one of the big problems for cities has al had always been that there were lots of uninsured people and the burden of caring for those uninsured people fell disproportionately. So, for example, in Boston, my home city, um, you know, Boston Medical Center was the closest hospital to the uh, poorer parts of Boston. It's a great, great institution, it's phenomenal. It was deluged with people who before uh, coverage expansions in Massachusetts didn't have insurance coverage. It puts a real, real strain on things. And you can see that across the country, every city has a hospital system like that. By expanding insurance coverage, both through the um, Affordable Care Act's exchanges and also through Medicaid, in places where that's been done, the burden put on these safety net hospitals has really fallen a lot. And the burden put on um, the medical system as a result has been uh, really eased up. And so I think for cities, it has been quite wonderful because people who were hardworking but not working in a job that had insurance, they were too rich for Medicaid, too poor to be in a job that was offering good benefits. Those are the people who the Affordable Care Act helped the most. And um, you can see it both in, in their insurance coverage, in how they can now use the medical care system, and in how the medical care system is now able to function better because it just doesn't work when you've got a large share of people who aren't regularly in the system and for whom you're not getting paid. David, uh, you're back, your day job at Harvard, but... Uh... President Biden's now running the show. Lots of headlines about what Biden should do with Obamacare. Some people, the, some of the headlines on CNN are saying expansion. There's a piece by Jordan Wiseman um, on Slate saying that uh, the Democrats are about to repeat one of Obama's care's biggest mistakes, which is going too slow. What advice would you give the Biden people on expanding uh, Obamacare? So uh, I'll give them a couple of pieces of advice. One is 
the single most pressing issue now, having expanded coverage, is to figure out how to save money in medical care. So medical care costs too much, it takes too many resources, and we have to figure out how to reduce those resources, spending less on prescription drugs, spending less on administrative costs and so on, not by taking care away from people, but by finding out how to, how to run the medical system better. In addition, and, and it's sort of related to that, and COVID brings it up, we cannot have a medical system that's focused on paying the bills that's not focused on how do we keep people healthy. So one of our huge failures, again, in every city, every city, as we were talking about, has people whose health is poor, whose socioeconomic status is uh, poor, who are not doing well. Those are people in whom, th those are parts of cities where, which are sort of rife for infectious diseases of all types. So that's where you get opioid epidemics and heroin epidemics and cocaine spreading and COVID both uh, uh, killing people and taking root and spreading elsewhere. And so we're going to have to have a healthcare system where the goal is health and not just paying bills of people when they happen to get sick. And that's related to the coverage side and it's also related to the cost side. So I would tell them, do not fight the same battles again. President Obama fought them, he won what he won. Instead, try and deal with some of the other issues that are really crippling people in society. What about the doctor, uh, the, the medical profession itself? Um, we had Robert Pearl on the show recently. Um, uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with his new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. We used to think of doctors as the rich white people who live in the big houses. That's less and less true. How much do we need to reform the system in, in terms of uh, improving the quality of life, changing the, the nature of the, the medical profession? I think we need to quite a lot. The physicians who are burned out, you know, these are people who remember at the beginning of COVID, these are people who rushed in when there was no treatment, there was very little prevention, they were putting themselves at risk. I mean, I, I have doctor friends who were literally walking down the hallways of the hospital, knowing that some share of people were going to get very sick and could possibly die. And they were saying, that's just what we have to do. So these are absolutely heroic people, doctors, nurses, orderlies, techs, every single one of them. And they're frustrated <clears throat> because the system is not working for them and it's not working for their patients. So there's burnout, there's um, depression, there's unfortunately suicide among them. So it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to have a system that patients are frustrated by, that the people who work in it are frustrated by, and that's we know is not serving people well. And so we're going to have to address that. It, you know, and COVID has just shined, you know, shown a spotlight on so many of these areas where it doesn't work well. David, in the book, um, Survival of the City, you suggest that for the city to really survive, we need uh, an Apollo program. You contrast this with the Marshall Plan. What kind of Apollo program particularly when it comes to creating more socioeconomic justice in the city. What kind of Apollo program do we need? Yeah, so we, we, we actually give a couple of examples of types of programs. One which we give with respect to international health is we talk about a NATO-type program. 
There is no organization that looks out for the world's health the way that NATO looked out for the world's security from invasion from uh, the Soviet Union. And, and so we, NATO managed to prevent nuclear war, helped to prevent nuclear war in Europe, and we have nothing to prevent outbreaks, and that's a shame, or nothing, no, nothing as effective to prevent outbreaks. So that's one example. Another example which we give is the Apollo program there, it, it's it's sort of uh, also clear, you know, you have a very clear goal about things like I want there to be better education and I want there to be police that are both responsive to crime prevention and that are also cognizant of people's desire not to be harassed by the police and not to be um, uh, killed by police and otherwise uh, harmed by police. And so we need to, to, to come up with programs that will uh, that that will achieve all of those goals. And we have schools that are failing, particularly inner city kids, and we need to address that. So these are all examples where we have laid out very, we as a society have very clear goals for what we want, but we, we sort of do them too incrementally to get anything done. And then one day we wake up and realize, gosh, we didn't plan for a pandemic and look what we got now. Or we didn't plan for, you know, to, to get the police to focus on what we want. And look what we've got. We've got our cities that are just um, rioting because they can't take it anymore. Uh, David, uh, as I said um, at the beginning of the show, San Francisco today got awarded uh, the world's best city. But a lot of people might disagree. One person I think who would disagree is Dave Eggers. He, uh, I talked to him yesterday. The, that show hasn't been broadcast yet, but it, it's imminent. He's the author, of course, of the dystopian novel, The Circle, and he just has a new book out uh, called The Every, which imagines the San Francisco of the future in which everything is observed, um, which data is ubiquitous. And one of the areas, there's a few bars in San Francisco, he said, which exist beyond tech, but everyone else is being observed all the time. And one of the areas in which The Every, which is a, this ubiquitous uh, tech, big tech company from Silicon Valley, this fictional combination of Amazon, Google, and, 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 and Facebook. Uh, one of the areas that uh, Eggers is most concerned about is health and healthcare, justifying it in the name of health and healthcare. It brings to mind uh, the book Nudge by one of your Harvard colleagues, Cass Sunstein. Cass has been on the show. Are you concerned? in the long term about the future of cities in terms of tech, that they become kind of laboratories for um, uh, behavioral economists like Cass Sunstein or uh, uh, laboratories for the kind of uh, authoritarianism that's being pioneered in China? Um, that's a big set of issues. So I can say I, I am both afraid of it, but also there's some good things. So let me give you an example of a good thing and then and then um, we, can, we can contrast it with the scary things. So an a very good form of intervention would be um, if you have frail elderly people. So people who are uh, elderly living alone, they don't wanna move into a nursing home, but they have great difficulty. They might fall, they might be at risk for uh, burns or anything. And we now have the technology where we can be monitoring them in their house to make sure everything is okay, be alerted if something is going wrong, if they haven't eaten in a day, know about that. So we can help people live at home. That technology may be intrusive, but it can be used for good to help people live at home where they want to live to make 
their loved ones and their children and so on feel comfortable about them. Same with parents with children with special needs, make everyone feel comfortable. And we can also use it for, as you said, for spying on people and for saying, I'm not going to let you in this bar because I saw you coughed uh, this earlier this afternoon and you might have some disease and I, I don't want my other patrons. But, but it's worse than that. It's about, I'm not letting you into this fast food restaurant because you're 15 pounds overweight yeah. or um, yeah. I, I see that yep. you're smoking or that you're, yep. you're, you're having a glass of wine yep. at home when you're not supposed yep. to. Yep. So, and, and so it, uh, um, it, it's interesting because our views about it depend a lot on whether the thing is a choice of the individual or not. That is, people in general feel that it's okay for smokers to pay more because they view smoking as an individual choice. They view obesity as sort of an individual choice, although there's also a genetic component to it. Whereas where people would really feel bad is if they say, I'm not going to let you in here because I know that you have a history of heart disease and I'm afraid you're going to have in your family. And I'm afraid you're going to have a heart attack in, you know, if you if you come work for me. And so therefore you, you can't come work for me. So it, it, it varies a lot based on the setting. And, uh, and we're going to have to have systems where we say it's OK to keep track of people if they want it. And it helps them to live at home and independently, but it's not okay if there's something beyond an individual's control, um, just to use that to discriminate against them. David, finally, uh, we had um, Yanis Varoufakis on the show at the beginning of the week too, uh, the ex-Greek uh, economics minister. I'm sure you're familiar with him too. He has a new book out called... Um, Another now. It's a it's it's an imagination of the future of 2036. I'm going to liberate you from from economics, from uh, the Harvard University of September 2021. Become a dreamer for me for a moment, David. Uh, let's imagine a city in 2036 that you could architect very briefly. What would it look like? Oh wow, that's such a wonderful thing to think about. Um, first thing is that it would be uh, good for everybody. Now, incomes are not going to be the same for everybody, but there would absolutely be a sense that there's a shared mission and that everyone has the opportunity to advance. So new immigrants, existing people would be there and so on. Second is it would have very low carbon footprint. So it would involve a lot of public transportation. The buildings would be green. The um, uh, uh, use of energy would be at a minimum. You know, the, ironically, cities are much, much uh, better for the environment than our rural areas because the density is tighter and and, uh, and and the buildings can be can be better and you don't need to travel as much and so on. So it'd be it would it would be that way. Um, and then I think it would be a place where you get to sort of live and enjoy the features of being close to others. So the intellectual conversations, the arts and the culture, the things that we like about being human, you know, humans are a social species. And so the social aspect is something that cities are great at. Um, suicide rates are higher in rural areas than they are in urban areas because in part because of the isolation and so on. So allowing people to enjoy the togetherness and the things that can happen from togetherness are part of what my ideal city has as well. I want to go um, there, David. Is there a place like it today? Singapore, perhaps? Certainly not San Francisco. I was going to say, I'm told that San Francisco is the best that there is. So, um... <laughs> Well, I'll have to come out. and Well, I'm sure you come out all the time. We'll have to do a live show out here. David, 
Cutler, co-author of Survival of the City, uh, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Very important new book. You're a very important thinker, economist, um, insider in Washington, D.C. and on the East Coast. Congratulations on the new book, David. Uh, I know you are in your recently re-inhabited office at Harvard University. We're still not quite sure whether we're supposed to go out. So in addition to survival of the city, what else should people be reading in these weird, surreal times? So one which I'm loving, which I have right here, is actually The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which is about all the ways in which the law has explicitly or implicitly affected the uh, racial gaps in society. And those are some of the most important gaps, as we were talking about, the difference between whites and uh, non-whites, um, and the therefore the steps that will need to be taken legally and elsewhere to address some of these long-standing uh, racial and ethnic issues. Good advice, David. Thank you so much. Keep well, keep thinking, keep reinventing the city. We need the cities of the future, and we need guys like you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.